0: For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, with the latest readout video from our Wednesday Wake Up email newsletter, and this week it's a video about a video, at least to start off, because our first newsletter item was about a talk by Mark Mills of the Manhattan Institute about the green transition. His talk was called, quote, the Energy Transition Delusion, Inescapable Mineral Realities, end quote, which doesn't perhaps leave a whole lot to the imagination, but we'll fill in a few gaps to get you to watch it. For starters, Mills is actually trained as a physicist, so arguably he's a climate scientist or would be if he said the woke things. But partly due to an early career in mining, he thinks and talks like an engineer, namely he worries about scarcity, efficiency, and trade-offs. Now, to people who don't realize that reality is tricky, those kind of terms can seem like nitpicking or even sabotage. By contrast, Mills has no problem with the motives of the transitioners, whatever mean stuff they may say about his. Quote, Rather, it's about minerals and mining, end quote. Boring, at least by today's standards, and the talk is nearly 47 minutes long, and it's full of charts, which some people find eloquent and thrilling, and others, well, don't. But a major problem with this whole energy transition is that it's being run and pushed by people who don't like charts or what charts tell them, especially on this file, and moreover, generally don't understand them. And to give just one example, Mills shows global energy consumption in 2022, in which wind and solar comprise just 3%, dwarfed by the oldest energy source other than mussels, wood, which is still at 10%. And enthusiasts may well cry, well, sure, 3% for now, but it was basically nothing as late as 2002, so it'll keep growing, problem solved. And Mills concedes that 3% is a lot in a world as big as ours, but he insists it's not a transition. Instead, it's evidence that transitions are, quote, slow and difficult and expensive, end quote, especially since it's cost us something like $10 trillion just to get this far. And he says, don't think that if 10 trillion bought us 3%, another $320 trillion would get us to 99. Because the more you go after the components of the new energy economy, the more you run up against rising costs due to physical constraints on availability. So it's just not going to happen for those dreary practical reasons. Speaking of which, The problem of expanding the power grid to deliver the supposed gold rush of alternative energy to the supposed gold rush of battery-powered vehicles, electric furnaces, and so on, is also not trivial for the same kinds of reasons. Canary Media recently conceded that, quote, small-scale renewables and batteries could team up to replace large fossil fuel plants, it just takes a whole lot of little devices to match what big old power plants can do. For now, truly massive fleets of decentralized clean energy devices, also known as virtual power plants, remain a rarity. The clean energy industry needs to deliver more proof that decentralized energy can provide reliable clean energy on a large scale, end quote. Oh, just that? An opinion piece by Steve Malloy in the Wall Street Journal noted that, quote, net zero and its corollary, the energy transition, are talked about so often and so loosely that many take them for granted as worthy goals that could be accomplished with greater buy-in from political and business leaders. But two new reports from the utility industry should put an end to such loose talk. In September, the Electric Power Research Institute, the research arm of the U.S. electric utility industry, released a report titled Net Zero 2050, U.S. Economy-Wide Deep Decarbonization Scenario Analysis, end quote. And apparently this document points out that even on the generation side, net zero is a pipe dream. As for the grid, quote, how a net zero grid could be built and function would be an issue worth studying if it were possible in the first place, but it simply isn't. And then Malloy says, quote, the curious thing about the report is that it has remained largely an EPRI secret, end quote. And it's actually not that curious. People don't want to know about it. Or about the other report, quote, 2022 Long-Term Reliability Assessment from the North American Electric Reliability Corporation, a government-certified grid reliability and standard-setting group, end quote, that, quote, concluded that fossil fuel plants are being removed from the grid too fast to meet continuing electricity demand, and that is putting most of the country at risk of grid failure and blackouts during extreme weather." These are the kind of things that happen when you don't do the math, including the strange number that the cost of hooking up a new project to the energy grid used to be around 10% of the project's total cost, but it's now generally between 50% and 100% more, which isn't what happens when scaling up brings costs down sharply. In the newsletter, we also point to an awkward History Channel special on the nightmarish conditions and weather of the Little Ice Age. Yes, it did exist. And this video was produced as recently as 2005, yet it dares to suggest that another cooling could be coming. And we also note how quickly a stifling blanket of orthodoxy has descended on so much of our culture and society, and how quickly it's become comfortable for so many people. It would be almost impossible to get the History Channel to run such a thing today. In the newsletter, we also say it's awkward that so many activists who claim to be following the science keep writing things like, quote, new IPCC report shows that climate time bomb is ticking, says UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres. The latest climate science assessment warns, once again, that global warming of more than 1.5 degrees Celsius would be devastating for Earth's people and ecosystems, end quote, even after the cat is out of the bag that that 1.5 degrees Celsius has no scientific foundation and never pretended to. We also point out that as Canadian carbon taxes continued to soar, the Trudeau administration continued to insist that we were getting more back than we were paying in, only to have the Parliamentary Budget Office say, no we're not, whereupon Environment Minister Stephen Guilbault, without missing a beat, told CTV News, quote, if you do the average, yeah it's true, it's going to cost more money to people, but the people who are paying are the richest among us, which is exactly how the system was designed, end quote, and exactly as we didn't tell you until caught. Oh, we also note that just maybe we humble Canadians might actually get the figure for public subsidies to that Volkswagen battery plant in St. Thomas, Ontario, and it could be in the vicinity of $15 billion. But, you know what they'll say, we can't afford not to spend it. And another thing. The Hill Times says of the just-released Canadian 2023 federal budget, quote, environmental experts praise budget's transformational investments, but say Fed's still avoiding a really honest conversation about the future of the oil and gas industry, end quote. Well, the reason they're avoiding it is that, in their view, it hasn't got one, but as long as the industry continues to pretend otherwise, the government sees no reason to stir up trouble. They're just getting on with exterminating it. In the newsletter, we also note that in a careless moment, the New York Times, The Morning, urged readers to, quote, bring these books to the park on your first warm day of spring, end quote, almost as though spring showing up was cause for celebration, not panic. And indeed, actual IPCC publications say that many scientists are concerned that humanity may face troubling consequences from a small amount of warming in the future, but that so far there's little sign of significant disruption. Whereas, if you rely on the popular press, politicians, and polemicists, you'll have the impression that we're already in the very hot soup, and that the return of spring, once welcomed as a sign of hope fulfilled, is now the trump of doom. In another item, we take aim at the weird way climate science journalism has become just more activism, including on the so-called culture wars. For instance, when Scientific American or realizes that, quote, scientists just warned we need to cut emissions by 60%, but the U.S. is years away, end quote, we know without looking that these scientists here are the same ones that always get the call when it's NBC or the New York Times looking for an opinion, and that the author of the piece is not a scientist. It also strikes us as odd that Scientific American now bills itself as offering, quote, commentary and analysis of the science behind the most urgent social issues, end quote, and that it publishes a rant by Nomi Oreskes that, quote, we can't solve our climate problems without removing their main cause, fossil fuel emissions, end quote. And, going further afield, sniffs that, quote, intelligence reports supporting the lab leak theory for COVID are not based in science, end quote, and then blames Republicans for peddling misinformation. How is this science reporting? But nature chimes in on cue that, quote, COVID origin study links raccoon dogs to Wuhan market. What scientists think? Some say the analysis supports the hypothesis that the virus that causes COVID-19 spilled over from an animal, but falls short of definitive proof, end quote. And then nature editorializes, quote, celebrate women in science, today and every day. International Women's Day can serve to bring hope, highlight progress, and inspire research communities to continue their efforts to push hard for true gender equality, end quote. True gender equality, now that's hard science. Oh, and on the subject of gender equality, using the telltale finally of progressives, National Geographic asks, is it finally on the horizon about a male birth control pill, which it assures us that men in Nigeria assure us they'll be happy to try. Roger Pilkey Jr. recently raised an alarm, or tried to, about scientists to cash in on the green energy subsidy gold rush after helping create the panic or even the actual subsidy legislation while insisting that anyone who's getting money from oil companies is a venal horror. But the corruption goes far deeper than that. Venerable, ostensibly balanced science publications are increasingly houses of woke whose science reporting is, in the worst sense of that term, political. And it's also unreliable. Consider the fact that California's weather woes continue, which actually isn't surprising if you know that the Golden State has had extreme weather as far back as anyone can remember and as far back as anyone can tell, and then some. But NBC declares that, quote, California's unexpected siege of wet weather after years of drought also included February blizzards powered by Arctic air, end quote. Didn't they know it rains in Southern California? No they didn't, because they believed the climate alarmist claptrap about never-ending drought and failed to do the research that would help readers prepare for what really happened and was really rather predictably going to happen, because it's always happened. For instance, in the 1951 Nero-Wolf mystery, Murder by the Book, protagonist Archie Goodwin goes to California and there's a running gag about how he gets rained on nonstop and as we've noted in this newsletter and in these videos before, historical accounts in the 19th century portray a comically awful alternation of apocalyptic drought and apocalyptic flooding in California. So, you'd think that people who live there, people who report on the place, and people who have administrative and political responsibility would know about it. But apparently not. Instead, they're really convinced that climate is simple, linear, and on fire due to human arson. And then the press babbles on about these newly trendy atmospheric rivers instead of taking the authorities to task for failing to build infrastructure suitable to the typical weather they have out there. In the newsletter, we also continue our cool climate data series by visiting the Rutgers University Snow Lab, which provides easy-to-navigate records of northern hemisphere snow cover. And among other things, these records confirm that, yes, spring snow cover in the northern hemisphere is down compared to the 1970s, but fall and winter snow cover is up. It's the sort of real-world data that puts a stop to chatter about how it just doesn't snow like it used to, or at least should put a stop to it. And On the subject of data, we note that the IPCC recently published something called the Synthesis Report of the Sixth Assessment Report, and we want to grant here that around 1990, the IPCC was a recognizable group of experts who put out relatively short scientific summaries that credibly represented the best available knowledge, however politicians and journalists then massaged it. But 30-plus years on, as government entities tend to, it has ballooned into a massive out-of-control bureaucracy consisting of many different and ever-expanding groups that don't talk to one another and with thousands of agenda-driven academics who've attached themselves to every available surface whether or not they have relevant qualifications. It's a classic piece of capture of a bureaucratic organization. And here Roger Pilkey Jr. works through one clear example of how deep the rot is. Starting with a 2019 paper that asserted that the fraction of tropical cyclones exhibiting intense, that's category 3 or higher, winds, had trended upward in all regions globally. But an alert reader noticed an error in the math, and then the authors published a correction, as they should, showing that the trends were too small to be statistically significant in all but two of the regions they examined. The IPCC 6th Assessment Report discussed this issue in Chapter 11 of the Working Group 1 report, which we have previously quoted. But they relied on the flawed original results and ignored the correction, and then it got worse. In the Chapter 11 summary, they said, it is likely that the global proportion of Category 3 to 5 tropical cyclone instances has increased over the past four decades, quote. But then, the summary for policymakers turned instances to occurrences, making it sound like entire hurricanes were getting stronger, not just their worst moments. Then, the authors of the synthesis report grabbed hold of the inaccurate summary and made it worse by inventing a claim out of nowhere. Quote, evidence of observed changes in extremes such as heat waves, heavy precipitation, droughts, and tropical cyclones, and in particular, their attribution to human influence has strengthened since AR5, end quote. But that business about attribution to human influence was invented out of whole cloth. And here Pilkey Jr. only says, quote, I come to the conclusion that the IPCC needs your form. Mistakes can creep into massive assessments, to be sure, but the failures I document below are absolutely unacceptable, end quote. We go a bit further. We say that when these mistakes creep in from the same direction over and over again, it's a toxic mix of dishonesty and carelessness due to activists with access to grind. And if the IPCC doesn't retract these errors, kick out the clowns responsible, and notify world leaders of the correction, you are entirely justified in treating it as a circus from here on out. Finally, in the newsletter from the CO2Science.org archive, we look at a paper asking whether an apparent increase in hurricanes is simply due to better observations, and yep, it sure looks that way. For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, and I'm not blown away by the IPCC.